Welcome to the Root Causing Health podcast, where we deep dive into the science to provide actionable answers to the problem of chronic disease. Today we have Nadira Lee talking with us, an interventional cardiologist who loves low-carb, high-fat diets, and he's here to talk with us about his experience and insights into atherogenesis and plaque formation. So without further ado, let's get started. Nadir, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm an interventional cardiologist, and uh, I started my training back in 1990. So right on my first day of training, I entered into the cath lab. I started doing uh, cats and stents. So I have about almost 30 years of experience uh, being in the cardiac cath lab. So in this time frame, I have probably done over five to 600 coronary angiograms every year. So I guess like that comes to be about 18,000 or so wow. in the last wow. 30 years. And then uh, probably have done maybe uh, somewhere in the range of uh, 10,000 coronary interventions, stents, uh, or valve experiments, or similar such procedures. So you could say that I have spent a, a large amount of my career in the cardiac cath lab. I'm also a, a cardiologist. I see patients in the office. Over the last five years, I have modulated my practice uh, to become a low-carb cardiologist, talking about nutrition, fasting, exercise, and uh, I have been trying to educate people about lipoprotein profile and about uh, the risks and benefits of statins or cholesterol-reducing medicines. So in a nutshell, that's who I am, and I'm hoping I'll bring value to this conversation. Thanks, Nadir. We're excited to hear about your clinical experience and what you learned since you've spent so much time in the cath lab. Uh, we recently learned of some literature by a pathologist named Giorgio Baroldi by way of Stephen Hussey on Twitter, uh, which seemed to suggest that the cause of an MI is not always a blocked coronary vessel. Given your clinical experience in the cath lab and so much time spent unblocking people's coronary vessels, uh, how does your clinical experience line up with that? Does unblocking coronaries solve, resolve people's symptoms of an MI? So um, I forgot to add that I have probably been on call for acute MIs. That means patients coming in with an ongoing heart attack um, for the last 30 years. And um, I have had as many as uh, 10 calls a month uh, for uh, upwards of 20 years. So it's not infrequent that I get called in the middle of the night to come take care of a patient having a heart attack and I can uh, say that when they are coming in with a heart attack, taking them to the cardiac cath lab uh, and opening up their blood vessel is perhaps the best way to resolve their symptoms, the chest pain that they're experiencing. I have given people upwards of uh, 30 milligrams of morphine, which is a very powerful opioid, um, uh, an analgesic to help relieve their pain and their pain does not get relieved but the minute you open up the blood vessel that was occluded at the time of the heart attack you see that there is an immediate resolution of chest pain uh, there is a significant improvement in their EKG when you occlude a blood vessel you have 
uh, what is called ST segment elevation. Uh, there is an electrical portion of the uh, EKG, which is the electrical recording of the heart, where um, there are changes and those changes resolve upon opening the blood vessel of the heart. So that's an acute situation. Now your question also encompassed whether like let's say somebody comes in with a significant blockage and I open up their blood vessel with a stent, but this is not the setting of a heart attack. Uh, does that benefit? And the answer to that is that not always, uh, but frequently. And when I say frequently, it definitely improves their symptoms. So in other words, there are studies that show that their exercise time on treadmill goes up. There are studies that show that their symptoms of angina, which is chest pain related to reduced blood flow to the heart muscle, that improves. Um, there have not been any substantial data about opening up blood vessels that are not causing heart attacks and improving long-term outcome, like reducing the risks of death or reducing the chances of these people having myocardial infarctions. So it's interesting that you mentioned the unreliability of data on the efficacy of certain interventions like these, particularly when we have an angina versus acute myocardial infarction situation. We've looked at some rather interesting pathology from Baroldi, which was suggesting that in some circumstances, there might be more going on here than just occlusion of a blood vessel. In particular, we're curious about the possibility that the electrical system of the heart or the autonomic nervous system seem to be involved in some way preceding an MI, possibly via endotoxemia or other routes. The more we read into this, the more we think there may be other systems at play here. For, for example, there's a very strong uh, increase in incidence of uh, heart attack immediately after an, a uh, respiratory infection. It's something like 17-fold increase. We're also a bit interested in the black box model. We've found statistics that a five-year survival rate for a 67-year-old male with stable angina was something like 93%, which we thought was surprisingly high. Um, if you believe that occlusion or stenosis causes angina, and you also believe that the same thing causes MI, why does there appear to be such a high degree of independence between these two endpoints? Are these data different for acute MI versus stable angina versus unstable angina? So, um, so that I can tailor it a, a little bit better to you, Andre, and to Nathan. Um, can you guys give me a little bit of your background as to, and also the background of uh, who would be, uh, or give me an idea as to who would be listening to these talks? Sure, I, I guess I'll start out. Our, our quest sort of began with the observation of lean mass hyperresponders in the low-carb community. We've had these observations that people's LDL goes up when they become very fit and healthy, even though every other metric of health was objectively improving. Uh, nevertheless, we kind of see LDL climb. There's been a strong narrative for many around the low-carb community that a lipoprotein-based model of cause in uh, atherogenesis is myopic, and maybe absolute serum LDL or ApoB concentration isn't that important, and that there's more to the story. But Fundamentally, we lack a cohesive explanation of what's going on or any hypothesis that comes close to explaining all the observations. I think this has left people very concerned because on one hand, we have this ridiculous fairy tale that Viking LDL particles are invading the arteries to cause atherosclerosis. But we lack any other basic explanation of what else might be driving the disease if that's not correct. Um, I think it should be pretty clear to people that 
this response to retention hypothesis is insufficient, especially in light of observations like a 60-year-old vegetarian male with low LDL dropping dead of a, a fatal MI without warning. Um, we did an episode of Carnivore Cast, which people can check out for more details on the specifics here. But basically, I grew pretty frustrated at the low quality of information and a lot of the self-contradiction here. We've been trying to find the, the cause of the disease per se, as, as in the primary mechanism that's driving the progression of atherosclerosis. We've been spre- spending a lot of time focusing on pathology to try and understand the basics, particularly guys like Konstantin Velikin, Giorgio Baroldi recently, E.B. Smith, and uh, others who can provide much more detail. There's clearly a lot of nuance to what's going on. We now know that there are six discrete types of lesions which have many different causes. It's not clear that every type of lesion is even part of the same pathology. Velikin, for example, suggested that fatty streaks may be a separate and independent pathology from that which causes mature, complicated, fibrous lesions. One of the things I started out with was what happens when I read research in pathology of atherogenesis, but I ignore the word lipoprotein or kind of attempt to research all the other mechanisms behind this disease. Not to say that lipoproteins aren't involved, but to consider the possibility that a lot of their action may, might be downstream of the root cause. Um, we're looking to get your perspective on this because the more we dig into this, the clearer it becomes that there are aspects of the pathology and the etiology of this disease that we really don't understand. As an engineer, one of the things we try to do is look at problems like these from a black box and say, if I poke it here, what does it do? And as such, questions like what I mentioned earlier come up. If you believe that stenosis and flow reduction or occlusion cause both MI and angina, why do those events seem more independent? And is there the possibility that events other than occlusion are playing a role in MI or the lead up to MI? Um, Baroldi calls out specifically the existence of collaterals and the observations that many times the collaterals seem to be able to take up the slack when the main artery gets occluded. He has the particular observation of people who died in accidents but were discovered to have essentially totally occluded coronary arteries but no damage to their heart muscle or evidence of a heart attack. Yeah, it kind of gives me a good idea of what uh, where you come from. And uh, so you are an engineer uh, looking at it from a problem-solving uh, root cause analysis standpoint and a, and a citizen scientist. And uh, so I understand that and I appreciate people like you because you think about things from a totally different perspective uh, because you are not bound by some of the uh, learning that you do through med school and you are not set in a specific hypothesis. So I, I like that. So what, what about you, Nathan? Is that is your background similar or? Yeah, similar story. I'm a software engineer and I went on a ketogenic diet. I saw my LDL go way up. My LDLC went over 500. My LDLP is actually above the measurable range. Uh, I was following Dave Feldman's work and eventually met Nick at Low Carb Seattle. And we've been digging into this since then. Uh, we're trying to find a hypothesis that explains all of the available observations. For example, we see that there's very tight localization of the disease where the healthy arterial tissue is just adjacent from disease tissue. Uh, we think we need a hypothesis that can account for that. So if we incorporate blood flow, hemodynamics, and endotoxemia, can that help us explain all the observations more precisely? So I want to kind of give you my perspective first about the lipoprotein system, and then we'll talk about some of the very interesting questions you raised as to why is 
uh, plaque buildup, you know, and, and I try to, I refuse to call it atherosclerosis because atherosclerosis implies a causation of the lipoprotein being implicated in actually as a causative agent. So I'm firmly on your side that whether the LDL as a lipoprotein is actually the causal factor in the plaque buildup is not clearly known by any stretch of imagination, at least from my review of literature and being a clinician for 30 years, uh, because I have seen people uh, with LDL cholesterols of 30 or sometimes even lower who come in with heart attacks, who have extensive uh, plaque buildup with calcification in all three blood vessels that supply the heart muscle. So I'll address that in a little bit as to the questions that you raised as to why you often see patients with accidental death who have extensive plaque buildup, many blocked blood vessels of the heart, and yet when you examine the heart muscle, you don't find any evidence of scar tissue in the heart muscle. So the blood vessels of the heart are supplying the heart muscle with nutrients, with blood flow, and you would expect that if the blood vessel is occluded, that the heart muscle that is supplied by that blood vessel should die. So let's shelf that for a second and talk about the lipoprotein system. And when I talk about talk about the lipoprotein system, it's basically LDL, HDL, VLDL, chylomicrons. All these uh, molecules uh, which have a phospholipid bilayer with some key identifying proteins which are different from a chylomicron to an LDL to an, to an HDL. And when you look at the lipoprotein system, you got to recognize a few aspects about it. Number one is that evolutionarily it's very conserved. It's there even in an insect and it's there in humans. The second aspect that you got to recognize is that the reason it is there is because it has to fulfill several biologic functions. Uh, one of the functions is uh, immune defense, host defense. Lipoproteins are implicated in preventing infections, in reducing inflammation, in cell repair. Now, lipoproteins are also a key integral factor in reverse transport of material, reverse transport of cholesterol from cells that are constantly renewing themselves. There is apoptosis, there is cell death. So that debris and extra lipid material in a cell has to be recycled. So that's called reverse cholesterol transport or RCT. And RCT is not just performed by the LDL, but it's also performed by the H, uh, sorry, not performed by the HDL alone, which is the high density lipoprotein, but the HDL and the LDL communicate with each other quite intricately because they are sharing triglycerides and cholesterol esters through different proteins. The other function of the lipoprotein is energy delivery. To some degree, they cycle the triglycerides between the liver and the intestine to fat cells, to muscle cells. So energy delivery is an important component that cannot be ignored in the lipoprotein situation. Finally, they are carrying 
a lot of different molecules that are important for cellular function. One of them could be CoQ10. Another would be antioxidants. And there are certain specialized lipoproteins such as LP little a that may have a very pronounced antioxidant function and a function in helping repair vessels after you have had a traumatic injury so that you don't bleed to death. So to implicate an evolutionarily conserved system as being dysfunctional and causing plaque buildup, which many people call atherosclerosis, is overtly simplistic. I think it is wrong. It ignores a lot of uh, functions that these uh, molecules do and just blocking one enzyme and expecting everything to get right is wrong or to just go and block a PCSK9 uh, protein which is controlling the amount of LDL in circulation and expecting everything to be uh, hunky-dory I think is a completely wrong aspect of uh, traditional medicine, mainstream medicine and it's probably primarily geared through the pharmaceutical industry to promote it. So I'll pause, a, pause for a second so that you guys can uh, give your comments about what I said about the lipoprotein system and if you want to expand on any of that before we can move on to the other uh, question that you brought up. That definitely resonates with me. Uh, basic pathology also tends to suggest there's more to the story here. Uh, there's a paper by E.B. Smith, actually, that measured the lipoprotein concentration in the tissue fluid of the artery and found that the arterial tissue had twice the serum concentration of LDL. Um, another paper actually found it to have like a quarter of the concentration of serum. But both of these would imply that an active mechanism called you know, transcytosis is regulating the concentration of lipoproteins in the arterial wall. And active mechanisms tend to have characteristics like feedback control that are somewhat independent of concentration. I'm actually still looking for a third paper to corroborate these, but for now I'll assume that we have no idea what healthy arterial tissue contains from LDL perspective. But It seems a little bit fishy given one, the active mechanism, and two, the endogenously synthesized protein and cholesterol, like the, these are both synthesized in the body, and three, there's a highly conserved mechanism, as you mentioned, that it doesn't seem likely that this whole system would be driving a problem like this. If you look historically, it's clear that the technology required to identify and to stain the cholesterol within a mature lesion was developed prior to the many of the other techniques, like the ability to measure fibrin or, or other components of the plaque, which obviously would lead to the hypothesis that the concentration of cholesterol drove the problem, even though that's not entirely logically sound assumption, much the same as you, you kind of wouldn't conclude that the pus within a cut caused an infection. But one of the other things we stumbled on was that lipid-lowering therapies that provide some benefit, like statins, actually also seem to have pleiotropic effects that act along the immune pathways. So one of the studies showed that people with a particular TLR4 SNP had vastly more benefit from a statin independent of its cholesterol-lowering effects. And we see a clear lack of dose response in the drug field. So one example was evacitrapib, which lowered LDL, raised HDL, and did literally nothing for, for patients, whereas statins lower LDL by 50%, and they have some benefit, but it's sporadic to null mortality benefit. And then Fourier, if uh, the Fourier trial showed a P53 
PCSK9 inhibitor gets your LDL into the 30s, but doesn't help mortality at all. So if LDL were really important, we would expect to see that the more LDL lowering you had, the more benefit you saw. And that too, lowering LDL a lot improves the mortality a lot. Um, but we see neither of these two trends. The, the clear lack of a relationship between the amount of LDL lowering and the benefit clearly points to pleiotropy as a mechanism of action here. So I, I, I guess I, you're singing to the choir here as far as you're talking to me about lipoprotein profile, because I've made some of the very same points that you have talked about. Uh, Jupiter trial dropping LDL by uh, 50% using rosuvastatin. Uh, the difference in mortality, all-cause mortality, was less than 0.5%, uh, which is a ridiculous number when you look at 18, 19,000 patients. Uh, the four-year trial using PCSK9 inhibitors, dropping LDL cholesterol to 30 compared to 19, the control group. And mind you, these are 28,000 patients. And uh, actually, no, not only no difference in mortality, but a higher mortality in the treatment group than in the control group. So um, I couldn't agree with you more that, uh, that you know, working on a single aspect of the lipo lipoprotein profile and expecting to have a difference is wrong. And I'd like to um, challenge people about the pleiotropic effects of statins because I think that the pleiotropic effects of statins are in some ways invented by researchers who have uh, uh, a sort of a personal gain in terms of saying that they do good things because if you look at the mechanisms by which statins work, uh, they are mitochondrial toxins, uh, they reduce uh, glutathione oxidase, which is a very important, uh, uh, which is a very important antioxidant defense in our body. Uh, they uh, do affect the um, uh, cholesterol rafts that are there at the level of uh, the insulin receptor, they may make the toll-like toll receptors, the TLR4, uh, become less active because there are cholesterol rafts and macrophages also that would um, uh, affect the expression of these receptors and dropping endogenous cholesterol production might cause a slight degree of benefit but compared to the damage to the mitochondria through CoQ10, through the pathway in which they reduce uh, the antioxidants that the body naturally produces, through directly reducing uh, vitamin K2 production, through directly affecting the insulin receptor, I think that their pleiotropic effects are in the negative direction, not in the positive direction. Yeah, it would make sense for pleiotropy to go both ways. And as you said, in the case of statins, it seems to go in the negative direction for many people. Uh, the point you made about the medical system wanting to lower LDL, I think that there's a lot of hubris involved that isn't really recognized. I think people need to think about that. Uh, jumping back to what you said about the immune system, I actually just did a series of tweets looking at the immune system, drug, and light protein interactions I found in the research literature. I think this helps explain why CTEP inhibitor drugs didn't work, even though they lowered LDL and raised HDL. I, I couldn't agree more. The fundamental aspect of why the lipoprotein system is there is to exchange triglycerides and cholesterol esters between HDL and LDL. And you use a CTEP inhibitor and you prevent that, you're going to have an increased risk of cancers, a higher mortality, 
perhaps a higher infection rate. Because what we are failing to recognize is uh, immunology, uh, host defense, uh, immune surveillance is so closely linked with the lipoprotein system. So when you, when you think about lipoprotein system, you should not think of it as uh, something that helps causes plaque. You got to think of it in a much more broader perspective that this is there to do so many different functions. And what we need to do is to understand how can we make the lipoprotein system the most optimal uh, in terms of human health. And, and I really think that the most optimal way in which you can improve the lipoprotein system is to have a low level of triglycerides. In other words, have very low VLDL because that's basically fat energy that's hanging in the bloodstream. Have a fairly decent level of HDL. And as far as the LDL cholesterol is concerned, it is probably should be individualized because people who are uh, physically active, who are healthy, um, who are um, doing uh, a large amount of uh, physical activity, uh, doing fasting, I would expect, and I uniformly see, just like you guys have seen, that the LDL levels are very, very high. And I'm not sure, I'm, I'm not prepared to say that that is a bad thing at all. And the reason is that I see 90-year-olds, 90, 95-year-olds with LDL cholesterol in the 250s, and I take them to the cardiac cath lab and I find that their blood vessels are pristine. There is smooth lumen, normal-looking blood vessels with normal flow. And here is a molecule that is so implicated in plaque buildup, what happened out here? Why didn't it affect these people in 90 years? It's funny, uh, Constantine Velikin had a quote along the lines of, such logical deductions are extremely rare in the field of atherosclerosis research. I mean, that's kind of what you should conclude if you see that right. A uh, quote-unquote anomalous observation like that should help you answer the question of what's actually going on here. It's not an isolated anomalous observation. Like if I saw one patient... I would say, hey, you know, this is this is crazy. But if you see 80-year-olds and you see that their LDL level is high, their cholesterol level is high, I, I turn around and congratulate them and saying that, hey, you've got a very robust lipoprotein system. I think that you are at lower risks of infection, lower risks of cancers, that your mortality is lower compared to your peers with lower cholesterol. Um, they look at me and they are, quite perplexed because that is the concern that the entire mainstream medicine has raised for them for the last 30 to 50 years. And uh, they are just not able to digest that. And I have trouble dealing with my colleagues uh, because my stance is like, I would say if of all the uh, 500 cardiologists in the Houston area, I could probably point to one guy, one other person who would say, hey, having a high LDL in the setting of a very good lipoprotein profile, just like we talked about, a low insulin level, a low triglycerides, high HDL, which is somebody who's very insulin sensitive, is good. Nobody else, none of the other cardiologists are uh, willing to take that stance. 
So a lot of people like to point to the correlation, just the, the weak correlation of LDL in general with the disease incidence and endpoints. There's a lot that bothers me about that. For example, if you have a, a cause, as in A causes B, you expect A and B to correlate very strongly. There wasn't, like a, for example, a 0.2-fold correlation strength between cigarettes and lung cancer, for example. Like there was a 15 to 40-fold correlation. Um, if A and B correlate sporadically or weakly, that, that's kind of your answer right there, right? Clearly, no, A does not cause B. What I tend to conclude when I see a weak sporadic association is that I'm looking at something kind of tangentially associated with cause. And when you get that, you should kind of look upstream, for example, to see what other factors might be influencing A. Just to kind of underscore this, LDL doesn't even independently associate with bad outcomes. Dave Feldman is literally offering, I think, thousands of dollars for just a single hazard ratio, which would show that elevated LDL is associated with bad outcomes when triglycerides and HDL are held at optimal levels. Um, when I see the radio silence from any proponent of a lipoprotein infiltration or retention hypothesis, um, that kind of clears up any ambiguity for me on this issue, right? He's been asking for that data for years now, and there's absolutely nothing that's been provided. And what bothers me about this further is that what you tend to see in low carb is, oh, my hypertension is gone, my weight has normalized, I'm happy now, you know, my visceral adipose tissue is down by 90%, my HDL and triglycerides are optimal, my insulin is on the floor, my HSCRP is low, but my LDL is elevated, right? And I simply can't fathom when you have so many clearly amazing surrogates and hard endpoints, some of those are actually things that we can directly measure and directly impact our life, that anybody, based upon what could only be described as terrible data, would prioritize optimizing for LDL instead. You, when you see that, you, you have to argue that LDL is more important than literally everything else on that list. And I don't see anyone prepared to make that case, and I certainly don't agree with it at all. Uh, I, 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 um, I think as far as that is concerned, we are in an echo chamber. Uh, we all reflect each other's views. Um, so... Uh, I want to take a minute to uh, go back to your previous point because it's quite interesting and I, I don't know if we will have any real answers to that. But uh, let's take the situation of uh, an acute myocardial infarction. So unstable angina is different than an acute MI. In unstable angina, you have a vessel that is threatening to close but has not completely closed. Um, so you get EKG changes that are different than in an acute heart attack, which is called an acute myocardial infarction. Another name for that is acute MI. Some people refer to it as ST elevation MI. So uh, in this situation, the blood vessel, usually this blood vessel has a blockage and it gets completely closed by a blood clot. And it happens all of a sudden, and in this situation, the person starts having chest pain, EKG changes, and um, uh, usually uh, these patients seek medical attention. And when they come to the hospital, there's a protocol for activating the cardiac cath team. So the ca cardiac cath team is activated. The cardiologists like me and other people who work in the cath lab rush to the hospital they take the patient to the cardiac cath lab. 
and then they do a coronary angiogram. You, 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 put a, you thread a plastic tube through the femoral artery all the way to the heart and look at the pictures of the blood vessels of the heart. You find the blood vessel that is causing the heart attack. You put a wire across that blockage. You open that up with a balloon and stand. And like I was telling you at the beginning of the podcast, that is when the patient starts feeling better. That's when the chest pain goes away. That's when the ST segment elevation goes down. So the blood clot is clearly a causal factor in an acute heart attack, no matter which way you want to dice it. And I was looking at some of the information on the book that you forwarded, and I think it tries to give you a an idea that that may not be completely accurate, but that is more or less the picture 90 to 95% of the time. Now, there were people back in the 1960s and 70s who said that the heart muscle dies first. And since the heart muscle dies, that's when the blood vessel, because the flow is not needed, the clot, the blood clot came as a result of the heart muscle dying. And that was the NIH professor, William C. Roberts. But that was inaccurate because there was a Western Washington trial, a study that was done in which for the first time, because at, at that time in 1970s, if you took a patient having a heart attack to the cardiac cath lab, it was considered malpractice. But they took them to the cardiac cath lab took pictures of the blood vessels of the heart, showed that the blood vessels were blocked with a clot, dripped some clot-busting drug, opened up the blood vessel, and then relieved the heart attack. So I think as far as that is concerned, I would like to go on rec record and say that the blood clot is the primary reason and a blockage of the blood vessel where the blood clot occurs is most common factor causing a heart attack. Now, that is not the same situation. Like, let's say I see a 50-year-old gentleman who's complaining of some chest pain. He's obviously not having a heart attack. I take him through the cardiac cath lab, and I can find a number of different scenarios which will corroborate the work that you sent to me. A, a scenario would be that he has a 90% blockage of the blood vessel of the heart, he has no collateral blood flow around that blockage. There's no collateral flow from other blood vessels that are coming and supplying the heart muscle downstream. And in that situation, if there is documented reduction of blood flow through the blockage, opening it up with a stent will definitely improve this person's quality of life, exercise tolerance, and chest pain. Yeah, so Velikin had stated in his book when discussing this that heart attacks which aren't explained by thrombi were probably on the rarer side, and they he, he mentioned that they seemed to be discussed kind of disproportionately to the incidents. Baroldi seemed to talk about it a lot, though, and he seemed to argue that heart attacks caused by other factors were more common than a thrombi directly. But I think he was wrong there. Yeah. Because... I mean, if you look at, and there are a substantial number of heart attacks throughout the country on a yearly basis. And when you have a true diagnosis of a heart attack with ST segment elevation, myocardial infarction, you would see that 95% of this is because of a blood clot in a location where the blood vessel is blocked. 
Can can you touch on your experience with collaterals? Um, Baroli suggests that people see collaterals form under normal circumstances, whereas you, you mentioned that some people don't appear to see them form. Like, what what's the difference there? So there's no question that I see collaterals all the time. The pathologists have seen these uh, uh, events post-mortem with different kinds of uh, fixation of the heart. But I see collaterals on a daily basis in the cardiac cath lab. And collaterals are very variable. In other words, some people have very robust collaterals. Like, for example, if I were to take you to a different situation, a 50-year-old coming to my uh, to me for chest pain, and I suspect this is from uh, his coronary artery disease, I take him to the cardiac cath lab, and let's say the blood vessel supplying the front of the heart, which is the LAD, is 100% blocked. And yet, he's got excellent collateral vessels that are bypassing that blockage coming from the right coronary artery. And when I take a picture of the pumping chamber of the heart, which is telling me if the heart muscle is dead or no, I see that the heart muscle is completely normal. In other words, there has been no evidence of damage to the heart muscle. Now that's not as sensitive as doing an MRI. Now you could do an MRI and uh, the MRI would show whether there was small spotty areas of damage to the heart muscle through different techniques. So, you know, you can find out more details about the heart muscle in such a situation. So in that situation, yes, you do see that and collaterals have protected this person. But to make a blanket statement that, yeah, you would get blockages, but really almost everybody would get collaterals that would protect their heart muscle downstream. That is where I would probably not be willing to participate and say, yeah, I support that notion. We're definitely not expecting you to agree with absolutely everything we say. Um, can, can you touch on your understanding of why one person might see collateral development while another may not? And, and you know, you, you don't necessarily have to be a rocket scientist to find that out, right? Like, for example, um, if somebody is getting a blockage that is gradually developing over several years, and they already have some collaterals, almost all blood vessels in the heart have some degree of collaterals. And I, and I, and I think that the, st- the definitive study to tell that how many of us have collaterals from birth that can mature easily over time and how quickly they can mature over time as the blockage or the blood flow through the main blood vessel gets restricted is not clearly known. We, we, we don't know that answer. This, this, I mean, even though this pathologist has done an excellent job in terms of gathering information, this information is something that probably will take a lot more work. So if the blood vessel is slowly becoming blocked and that person, in my opinion, is let's say physically active and exercising and trying to augment blood flow to the heart muscle, which is needed to, uh, to exercise, then there are more reasons for the collateral blood flow to get established and get better over time. On the other hand, if the blockage is at about 50%, it's not really stopping blood flow downstream, then what would happen is that, let's say that there was an event, you know, 
a sudden surge of adrenaline, uh, a, a, a stressful event, a sudden increase in blood pressure. Uh, let's say that this person became severely insulin resistant or there was some other inflammation going on and you had plaque rupture. You know, you had, a, you had the blood vessel rupture. It forms a blood clot. It closes the blood vessel. In that situation, the collaterals would not have time to have formed robustly to protect this person from having a heart attack. So there are plausible theories about collateralization, what promotes the collaterals, and those are very interesting aspects, aspects to explore. And the fault of interventional cardiologists like me is to treat every, every blockage as something that we need to fix. And it is people like you and the larger community discussion that should come about and say, hey, yeah, this blockage is there, but for some good reason, this person has neutralized the downside of that blockage by forming these collaterals around this blockage. The blood supply downstream is adequate enough that subjecting this patient to a stent and opening up this, block, uh, this blood vessel is not necessary. And that's one of the reasons why you find variability in studies that compare stents versus medical therapy. You know, take a 67-year-old, like you said, and do nothing. And you find that there is only a 7% mortality, according to you, in 5 years or 10 years. And you're saying, hey, this is a low mortality. What's going on? If this blockage was so bad, why didn't all of these guys die? Right? Isn't that your question? Yeah, I, I think understanding this whole process is very interesting to those looking to manage advanced plaque via carbohydrate restriction or some sort of appropriate human diet. If we can understand what factors allow the body to repair and work around plaque, I think that's a major step towards being able to help people who want to use lifestyle to fix the problem. As you say, it's very easy to put stents everywhere, but perhaps there's a bit more going on here that we need to be aware of when we make treatment decisions. I, for example, have family members with advanced atherosclerosis as well who don't necessarily have an obvious path forward. You know, do you do medical therapy, lifestyle intervention, both? Resolving this ambiguity and giving people actionable and effective management strategies, I think it's really important because... We just have to consider this all so we can develop a holistic plan that people can apply and work with. Yeah, I think the hypothesis that someone with a 50% occlusion who's sedentary and then suddenly they have a large demand in the, the need for cardiac output and that leading to an MI makes a lot of sense. So the other thing we've looked at is the role of immune interactions here, both in the interactions between the immune response and the lipoproteins, as you talk about, but also in the larger ways in which the immune response may drive atherogenesis and myocardial infarction. Have you looked into the immune interactions specifically? Well, I mean, uh, uh, as far as the immune system is concerned and as far as host defense is concerned, I think it's so intricately tied to the lipoproteins. Like, for example, uh, the uh, LPS uh, binding protein, the lipopolysaccharide binding protein, that is a protein that is carried in the LDL molecule. It facilitates the transfer of LPS into the LDL so that you can dampen down inflammation. The same situation happens in terms of 
inflammation because with inflammation there is always cellular debris there is cell death and a lot of the lipopolysaccharide which is basically small components of cell membranes hooked to some sugar residues they are floating around those things need to be cleared and i think that our lipoprotein system was designed to do this because think what happens is that when you have an infection or when you have an inflammation the liver has a number of proteins that it elaborates and one of them is the uh, acute phase reactants these are called these are proteins that the liver puts out to help the body one of them is the lps binding protein a second protein that it puts out which is an acute phase reactant is not surprisingly pcsk9 so pcsk9 is a protein that the liver is pumping out in the situation of inflammation and infection the reason that it is doing that is because it wants the ldl it wants the vldl to remain in circulation so that it can mop up the inflammation that's going on mop up the bacteria that are there and their and their products and that's why the pcsk9 goes and binds to the ldl receptor internalizes it and degrades it in the lysosomes so that ldl is not removed circulation so i think that the basic training of every cardiologist should be that hey let's spend 6 months with the lipoprotein system let's see what is it doing let's bring the field of immunology infectious disease and cardiology together to figure this out now unfortunately that's not happened so far but i'm very optimistic it's people like dave feldman people like ivor cummins people such as yourself nick and and nathan you are beginning this conversation and this conversation is not just limited to the physicians it's it's a larger conversation that the entire society is participating in and it's only when we do these kinds of talks when we bring this knowledge to the masses is when we are going to change this we we are not going to change this by uh, academic discussion in the halls of universities and nih or with the pharmaceutical companies because they are biased right now you mentioned about immune complexes as being something that is of concern but see what are you doing when you are giving a pcsk9 inhibitor you are giving an antibody to a person that's going to go bind the pcsk9 so that is an antigen antibody complex in a way that needs to be cleared so it makes no sense to me that you are injecting an antibody into somebody a parenteral antibody into somebody and expecting something good to come out of it when the pcsk9 is so homeostatically regulated in our human body and uh so i i i find it uh that the mainstream medicine and the pharmaceutical company are only profit motivated they are not motivated to explore these finer questions or if they are they're not putting it out as questions that everybody should be involved in yeah my suspicion is that they they probably know a lot more than they're letting on to especially with the competence of these people to synthesize and identify pharmaceutical agents and the amount of knowledge it kind of requires to 
to do that. It's funny, Nathan was just sending me sepsis papers earlier today talking about how these endotoxins actually get cleared by LDL in kind of a dose-dependent manner, i.e. the higher LDL means more clearance of endotoxins. It's it's a bit shocking to me that you have to leave the field of atherosclerosis and lipidology and go to sepsis research in order to be able to find people really discussing what's going on here with the immune system and, and lipoproteins. Yeah, I guess we should give you our hypothesis at the moment, and you can give us your thoughts. Uh, our main thought is that atherosclerosis is mostly driven by a gut immune interaction. Our current food environment is terrible, which leads to gut biosis, gut dysbiosis, and intestinal permeability. Uh, we have all kinds of food additives, emulsifiers, refined carbohydrates, fructose, alcohol. These all lead to either dysbiosis or intestinal permeability. This dysbiosis uh, leads to increased transport of LPS and LTA and other cellular debris into the body, which leads to systemic chronic inflammation. And those circulating LPS in areas of turbulent flow in the coronary arteries could trigger a localized hyperactivation of the immune system, which leads to that plaque development. And one of the things that's been interesting is discovering the nuance of these systems. It's clear that inflammation plays vital roles in metabolism beyond just the, the basics of fighting infection. So it's not simple in that more is always bad. It, it doesn't even necessarily require that the immune interaction or trigger is very elevated and results in a very high immune uh, activation. It could just be kind of a constant pressure on the immune system through a stimulus like constant consumption of garbage food and chronically elevated endotoxin concentration in the serum. That, that could do things like impair the healing process and prevent the, the inflammation from reducing or, or the uh, inflammatory response from running its full course. G- Gabor mentioned earlier when we talked with him that the body's natural response when it needs an inflammatory response is to actually open up the gut barrier to let those endotoxins in. You, you can imagine if such a mechanism were abused or that it got stuck on that it could kind of cause problems, but there's, there's definitely a lot going on here. I mean, I, I, I think that gut permeability that you talk about and the increase in inflammation as a result of that is uh, definitely something on my radar and I always think about it. And um, so if I were to pose a question back to you, in that situation, when you have a lot of LPS floating around, you need that mopped up, you need that taken care of. So in that exactly, situation, yeah. I'll take my LDLP of 3,500 in that case. I think I'll right. be spared from uh, infection and inflammation. So, uh, you took so the words I, out I, of I, my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, because the, it, the paper that I found that I sent Nick, I said it was a gold mine because uh, they were showing that uh, the clearance of LPS was actually uh, in a dose-dependent relationship with the concentration of LDL. Oh, so what, like, so oh, can, you, can you send me that paper too? Yeah, I'll tag you on the Twitter thread with all the stuff that I went through today, which was looking at uh, HDL and how HDL and LDL help clear up uh, LPS and why CTEP inhibitors mess with that because CTEP, and CTEP helps LPS or helps HDL and LDL transfer um, LPS around along with uh, phospholipid transfer protein. Um, and a bunch of other pretty neat stuff that I dug up today while I was on the plane to San Diego. Yeah. No, I mean, no, no question. I think that uh, I, I have a couple of friends who are infectious disease people, 
And they never looked at the lipoprotein system the way I want them to look at it. And now that I have given uh, several talks in which I talk about quorum sensing with regards to the LDL which and the LPS binding protein and the LPS, uh, they have started looking at the lipoprotein system in a very different way. So um, yeah, we, I, I, I like that conversation. Now, as far as gut permeability is concerned, another thing that we need to stress to people, I think, is that uh, to reduce gut permeability, our stomach acid, because we have a monogastric stomach, our digestion is based on acid, pepsi, acid pepsin digestion, and preservation of your stomach acid is vitally important for our health. And there are studies that show that as we get older, the stomach acid levels go down. So one of the ways to control dysbiosis is to reduce the bacterial overgrowth in the small intestines, which is the main absorptive surface. And the stomach acid is an ecological barrier to prevent increase in bacterial overgrowth in the small intestines. So the more you protect your stomach acid, the better it is. And unfortunately, mainstream medicine actually makes stomach acid worse because... Oh yeah, we give everybody the PPIs. PPIs and uh, antacids and H2 blockers. And then also, um, we are in the habit of eating a large amount of salad at the beginning of our meal. And the salad is basically food that is laden with bacteria and it has all kinds of chemicals that will block protein absorption, that will prevent, that will dilute out the stomach acid, that will bind to uh, many minerals. And so you are promoting dysbiosis by making people eat raw vegetable material at the beginning of their meal. And actually they should be eating a protein part of their meal at the beginning of their meal to use their stomach acid the best. That makes a lot of sense. This is all incredibly fascinating to me because there are a whole bunch of areas of study in nutrition that I had previously dismissed as being largely irrelevant before. But the, the more you get into it, the more you see that there's a lot going on in the digestive system and that the interactions between the food and our digestive system are, are really of utmost importance to our health. One of the interesting hypotheses I've had was that it, it seems like even when you move past a caloric balance model, we also kind of find that the carbohydrate insulin model is insufficient to explain all of the observations of weight management, particularly if you, if you dig into even the anecdotes that you find on like Reddit, uh, the, the keto subreddit. But if you pull back an, another onion layer, it, it kind of leads to a hypothesis that the, the nuance of the food-gut interactions are playing a role in the management of weight and disease. And th there's a lot there that we have yet to understand, which makes me kind of all the more curious about this. I agree. Hey, so can I ask the two of you to promote Low Carb Houston? Uh, we are uh, doing a university-based uh, uh, low carb uh, program uh, in Houston. It's uh, run by uh, University of Houston Clear Lake. Uh, it's all the proceeds go, you, you register through the university, so all the money goes to the university. None of the faculty or the program directors are directly benefiting from it in any way. Um, so it's to promote this idea of nutrition, lipoproteins, fasting, intermittent fasting, lifestyle, 
uh, to one of the most metabolically challenged country, uh, city in the in the country and uh, so i don't know it's it's lowcarbhouston.com yeah that's that, awesome we'll we'll share that and i'll let you continue with your message but i'll retweet you and uh, we'll put that in the show notes uh, and i invite both of you to come if you can you were at low carb seattle uh, this is primarily a science based program uh, we are not running it as an exhibition we are not trying to run it as a commercial endeavor um, it is meant for the general public uh, i have uh, ivor coming there i have dave feldman coming there uh, jeff gerber will be coming megan ramos uh, david diamond uh, peter ballerstad uh, amber ohan uh, amy berger so uh, any number of great people and you know, i'm sure that all of us admire and respect every single individual that i just uh, talked about it's october 24th to 26th uh, it's a thursday friday and saturday uh, we're going to um, have a texas style barbecue with okay i'm coming there's yeah, sign, sign me up i'll be there <laughs> i think That's i should be around then i'll fly out to houston never been before that's the best barbecue anywhere in the world and there is the guy out here who's been making it for like 100 years wow, uh, and, awesome. and ru runs a restaurant and uh, so uh, yeah i know I, I i did it last year uh, we had great response to the program uh, this year i am hoping for it to be even bigger and carry the message uh, uh, and carry the discussion forward just extending the work that you are doing yeah, we might have to talk to you about uh, maybe getting a talk in or something. I'd love for you to guys think about giving a talk. I could put you on the stage for giving a talk. We'll be there in 10 seconds if you give us that opportunity. We'll, uh, we'd be happy to put something together. Awesome. So do you mind uh, sending me, shooting me an email and, and discussing some topics about what you would like to talk about? Because seriously, I'd like to include you guys. I, I have so many talks that I, I can take myself off and put you on the schedule. I'll, I'll take that invitation. Yeah, we'll, we'll shoot that out to you. I actually, so my plane flight departs in a few minutes, so I've got to get uh, get meandering over to my gate. But um, this has been pretty awesome talking to you. Thank you so much for, for joining us and giving your, your thoughts and everything. Yeah, thanks well, for joining us. Thanks for your time. I, Nathan, I hope it met your expectations because I tried, so. I tried reading that book, but uh, I was falling off to sleep with every second paragraph last night. Oh, it was so dense. It is, uh, we appreciate the time you put into it. Your your insight and commentary was very, very informative. All right, my friend. I'll see you both in Houston. Absolutely. Be there. Take care. Sounds good. See ya. Bye-bye.